You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries, the 1970s. Today's mystery is, why didn't Pistol Pete ever win? We are brought to you today by Fast Break Breakfast. Fast Break Breakfast is a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. Check out what happens when you get two musicians and a comic who are overeducated, underemployed, but share an obsession about the NBA, 90s movies, and conspiracy theories. So make sure you subscribe to Fast Break Breakfast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast, or check it out at the Step Back. Hello and welcome back to Over and Back. I am Jason. And with me is a very special guest. He is a writer for Hawks.com, and he also is the host of the new uh, podcast, uh, ATL and 29, Kale Shenard. Kale, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. So we are going to talk about Pistol Pete Maravich, uh, one of the great players of the 1970s, and obviously one of the... Um, you know, icons of the game during the time, really one of the tremendously popular players in the league during the 70s. Um, but uh, despite his popularity, it, it came with um, a, a lot of difficulty in his life and in his career and also in terms of lack of team success. And we're going to kind of get into all of that, the the great and the, uh, and the difficult uh, in his life and in his career. You know, when he came out of LSU, had averaged 44 points um, per game for his final season was just, you know, it's, it's hard to overestimate what a powerful force he was in college basketball in terms of popularity. And coming to a Hawks team in 1970 that has just moved to Atlanta has been a successful team, but is also one of the first NBA team that is almost exclusively African-American. And it lacked, despite its success, it did not draw well in St. Louis, forcing the move to one of the reasons why they moved to Atlanta. First, I guess we'll talk a little bit about just, you know, how the legend of Maravich in terms of, you know, where he stood in college basketball heading into the pros in 1970. I mean, he was, he was it. I mean, he was the, the, the TV star, you know, he was one of the people that made 
basketball marketable on TV. Um, there weren't a whole lot of broadcasts for the NBA or college basketball, probably more for college basketball than the NBA at that point. But, uh, you know, he was one of the people that could actually get, you know, some eyeballs on the TV screen. And so coming into Atlanta, he was, he was a big draw. Like you said, the, the Hawks were, uh, you know, primarily an African-American team in 1970. And that was a big change, uh, from where they were a few years earlier. Um, you know, the, 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 the Pettit teams, uh, you know, playing in St. Louis, that was uh, primarily a, you know, a white team in a white environment that was, you know, particularly hard for some of the African-Americans to, to visit at that time. And so, you know, they, they moved to Atlanta. I mean, it was basically, it was a, you know, a promotional deal just because, um, you know, I think the, if you look at the, the Hawks move, you know, the idea was, you know, to have some sort of downtown attraction to make Atlanta, you know, a prime American city. It wasn't, it wasn't the Atlanta of 7 million people that it is right now. Um, And so, you know, they were, they were trying to sort of, you know, put the downtown on the map, so to speak, and, and put something there that, that was marketable entertainment. There was, there wasn't as much then. And uh, it didn't go over that great. You know, the first couple of seasons, the team was good. Ticket sales were not good. Um, this just wasn't really a basketball town to begin with. I mean, it still isn't a basketball town. It's a college football town. Um, college football <laughs> is king by a large stretch. Uh, it's true now, and it was true 45 years ago. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the the biggest thing, though, even underlying all of that was more so just that because he was the TV star and because money was tight, um, you know, it was it was a interesting economic dynamic with his teammates. You know, it wasn't like the NBA of now where you don't have rookies coming in and making substantially more than the star players. That doesn't happen. It's, it's sort of like, you know, what, what happened with Maravich was basically if you had a successful team of a bunch of guys making, you know, around the mid-level exception and all of a sudden you bring in a rookie who's making a max contract, you know, that dynamic is problematic, not so much on the, you know, the sociological levels, but on the economic levels, it was, you know, you have a bunch of, um, you, know, you have a bunch of, um, you know, men who have e- egos, not not ego problems, but just, you know, they have a certain amount of pride in their craft and they've spent their careers doing it. They were successful. You know, they won 48, 48 games two years in a row, uh, had done well in the Western Conference. And, and, you know, they thought they had a pretty successful team. And, you know, all of a sudden you're bringing in a young player who hadn't done a, a lick in the NBA and he was making so much more than what they were making. And so that's just, you know, that's a topsy-turvy dynamic that was fraught with problems from the start. Yeah, and they had already lost, um, you know, Lenny Wilkins for financial reasons. Zelmo Beatty had gone to the ABA for financial reasons. Joe Caldwell and Bill Bridges are still on the team. Bill Bridges is the captain. And, and, and Caldwell and Bridges aren't that well-known today, but they're, you know, very excellent 
uh, you know, really good role players. I mean, Caldwell was a, was a uh, you know was a star player, but more of in the vein of not necessarily like a go-to scorer, but just a guy who was solid in every respect and could score and, and, and could do just about everything as well. And he was a guy who really wanted a new contract and felt like you know he should be paid as much as. Um, this rookie, you know, is, is, is being paid. I mean, he understood the reality of the situation, but he also felt like, hey, you know, it, it's it's my turn. I've waited my turn, and I deserve a new contract, and eventually ends up going to the ABA. Now, the, the Hawks still have um, Lou Hudson, uh, Walt Bellamy, uh, Walt Hazard. Um, so they, they still have some pretty good talent, um, but – the, the chemistry is definitely not there um, to begin with. And, and part of that is just Maravich is such a unique, remarkable talent in the way that he, you know, that he handled the ball, the way that he shot, the amount that he shot. Um, I mean, the kind of awe that he inspired in people, uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit of how, you know, people have gone crazy over Steph Curry in the last couple of seasons just because of the, you know, the amazing three-point shooting, the amazing ball handling, the, the skill that he has. I, you know, Maravich doesn't compare in, in his effectiveness, um, although he was obviously a star of his time. But when it just comes to the way that his skills, you know, amaze people, I do think there are quite a few similarities. But the issue was that... And, and this really went back to Maravich's college and high school careers, that those skills never really made him a difficult player to to play with. Right. I mean, he was a he was a superlative individual talent, but he really didn't have a great track record of, you know, taking those talents and translating them into any sort of team success. And so, you know, you look at the the composition of the roster for the Hawks at that point, and they, you know, they had a, a scorer, they had scoring, they had, you know, they had Lou Hudson, who was a, you know, a primetime NBA scorer at that point in his career. And so they didn't really need somebody to come in and take a bunch of shots. That wasn't really something that was going to necessarily make them a better team. And, and so, yeah, that, that dynamic was also awkward. Yeah. And I, you know, just a couple other things getting way off track, but <laughs> He had a car phone, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to imagine, you know, finding out that your hotshot rookie teammate has a car phone at that era when that really wasn't a thing. Imagine the first time he showed that to his teammates that that inspired uh, some interesting discussions or jealousies. Um, and also, you know, the other thing that you, when you when you talk about Joe Caldwell that kind of slips into all of that is that, you know, another reality of just the overall basketball leagues at that point, you know, in addition to the fact that a rookie could come in and make so much more than the veteran team teammates are already there. The other aspect is there was this competition between leagues, right? Which ABA existed. And so that changes the dynamic entirely because then it becomes, you know, uh, uh, an arms race to get the top tier talents, uh, yeah, and the, these players, you know, the, for the first time, you know, the last two years before this, finally have some leverage to actually make some real money. Free agency isn't a thing yet. We're we're in the era of the reserve clause, where a player is basically tied to his team until his team doesn't want him anymore. So, yeah, it, it, this creates a you know a completely new dynamic. 
Caldwell was one of the first to, you, you, among the first along with Rick Barry and Zemo Beatty to uh, jump leagues and actually, you know, um, take advantage of that. He, he was definitely a missing piece for this team because he was something that he was definitely a glue guy that held the team together. And they went from 48 wins the previous season to 36 wins um, with, um, you know, Maravich really uh, taking too many shots, making mistakes, just not fitting in with the style of the team and the things that he was good at, as you as you mentioned. The Hawks already had. Well, Hazard was a similar player. Hudson, you know, was it was a go-to scorer. They, they really, you know, on the court, he was not really, um, you know, providing much that they didn't already have. And also, he was, um, you know, detracting from what they had lost. So it, it, it was it was a tough position for him and, and for the team, obviously. Um, you know, another thing is that you know Maravich had been molded into this basketball prodigy this this million dollar player by uh his father Presmerovich who was a, uh, a, a had been a um a player in the barnstorming days and then in the very early days of a uh, pro basketball it played very briefly in the BAA uh before the just a few years before the NBA um merged and um and then had been a successful uh, college coach and and was very well respected. You know, John Wooden considered him, you know, the most brilliant basketball mind in the uh, in the country. Yet he molded his son in this very um, obsessive, compulsive way of you know demanding that he work on you know all of these things, all of these dribbling drills, all of these you know all of these um, over the top things, and just you know, molding him in that way. And then the team, and he would almost always be his coach and then forcing the teams around him. So, you know, Maravich didn't really ever get this necessary, you know, basket on court and social skills in order to be able to share the ball and share the spotlight. And you'd probably deal with the locker room dynamics that you would need to have um, when you're put in that situation. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like he was, you know, before his time. You know, I think if you watch, you know, video of the games that were being played in that era, um, you know, his skills leap off the screen. But at the same time, you watch those games and you think, well, you don't really even need some of those skills. You probably, you know, those, those same skills would be wonderfully useful now against, you know, better, more sophisticated defenses with better athletes. But in those particular contexts, it just seemed like almost like an unnecessary risk to be doing some of the things that he did. So during that season, the Hawks had five national TV games. They actually outdrew the New York Knicks on the road and the Clyde Frazier Willis Reed Knicks. Uh, attendance at home was up 20%. Revenue was up um, 50%. And the new arena, the Omni, was approved all during that time. And the, uh, uh, the, the, the Hawks owner Tom Cousins was a real estate developer. Was uh, you know part of that um, development, so stood to make a lot of money. You know on on the uh, on the team and on the arena, and then pretty much the reason that that was built was you know was Pete Maravich coming into the team. So you know the lack of on court success was there, but just the you know tremendous change in business that he and you know, all the attention that he brought um, from that was was pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine the, the feelings of some of his teammates when they market the team as the new Hawks, 
you know, coming off of <laughs> two, two, you know, three really, uh, you know, if you count the last season in St. Louis, you know, a bunch of successful seasons in a row headed into that season. But, you know, one thing that, that, um, that I don't think anybody could argue with is, is that those, those blue and green uniforms are just marvelous. <laughs> they they right? are nice. Yes. Aren't they just fantastic? Those are coming back this season and I'm so excited. Yeah. Th- those are pretty, th- those are pretty great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to believe they only had those, I think two years or was it three years? It was not very yeah. long. Yeah. I can't remember for sure. I just know that, that, that it started the season that, that Maravich came in. I'm not sure how, how long it lasted. Yeah. I, so it's, yeah, it's, it was not long. Those are, those are fa- just, those are just fantastic. I just, I love that look. Yeah, they they are pretty cool. I mean, the, the Hawks have have. It's interesting because the Hawks have had some really great looks and some really bad looks over the years. It, it's and and they're all very different from each other. They have sort of you know shifted uh, identities many different times over the year. But they they do have some very iconic ones. Obviously, the '80s ones as well, um, and and the early '70s ones are pretty great. I'm not a big fan of the full lime green ones, but the ones with the you know the the the, the dark blue with the um, lime accents, I think, are just about perfect. Yeah, I think those are the only ones, you know, if you if you look they they do have a long history of of wide and varied choices, but I think, you know, red has been a a constant through all the uniform choices except for those those ones from the early Maravich years. Yes, exactly. So, um so his second season, uh, he he did he did improve somewhat at the end of the first season and you know, he did average uh, 23 points uh, that season. So it wasn't like he was a, you know, a disaster or anything. Um, uh, but the uh, second season, he um, dealt with illness early in the season um, and went from 205 to 168 pounds, like dealt with this mystery ailment for quite a while. They thought it was mono and they thought it was other things. And it was hard to get the team going. Um they traded Bill Bridges to Philly, so it was. It's very much now Maravich and Hudson as the primary. You know, are, are the primary stars with with Bellamy there as well. But um, it, it took a while. It took really like another year or so into '73. Um, uh, Cotton Fitzsimmons replaces Richie Guerin as the coach. And uh, Pat Williams comes in as general manager, who would later build some of the great '76ers teams. Um, and it's sort of a you know a time for Hudson and uh, Maravich to really uh, become quite a incredible uh, scoring tandem. The best that um, his Hawks tenure would get was probably the seventy. Right. Yeah. I mean, they they had uh, you know a lot of options uh, to score, um, but what the, you know they just seemed like they needed a lot of everything else. Um, you know, they didn't that if you look at the the sort of the bell curve of rebounding totals, you know, that seemed like, you know, those early 70s, the early 70s NBA, you know, the, you routinely see these guys averaging, you know, 14, 15 rebounds a game. And that wasn't like that out of the normal, you know, Bellamy got sort of up there, but not really. And there really weren't that many other guys getting very many rebounds for them at all. So you had to figure that that they were kind of getting killed on the glass and. Maybe, you know, Maravich wasn't the most efficient scorer. Maybe he would have been had there been a three-point shot or something at the time. But, you know, for a guy who's only, you know, in the low 40s, 
that's not really maximizing the the best of what you've got there. Yes, they were in uh, in '73. They were um, ninth in out of seventeen in offensive rating and ninth out of seventeen in defensive rating, and they both equaled ninety eight. They were almost exactly. Uh, you know, e- even in scoring throughout the entire season. So can you t- talk a little bit about um, uh, how important Lou Hudson was to the Hawks during these times? Because he was, you know, really the other star of the time for the Hawks and um, really another guy who, you know, um, pro- probably doesn't really get his due. I was very surprised recently to learn that he's not in the Hall of Fame and he seems like he is a pretty strong candidate to be a Hall of Famer, but, um, you know, it kind of gets lost a little bit in um, you, that during his prime, he was not necessarily the most popular time in the league and not necessarily the most popular team either. Yeah, I, I last last year I talked to um, Jim Washington, who's a retired player who was a, a power forward uh, on, um, you know, a few of the teams that had both Maravich and Hudson. And, you know, he's one of the people that, you know, has sort of behind the scenes, he's still sort of lobbying, you know, the, um, I want to say the veterans committee, if that's not the right name, but the, you know, the veterans committee of the hall of fame to try to get Hudson, you know, into the hall of fame. But, you know, the way he described Hudson's game to me is, you know, he described him as a scorer, but, you know, one of those guys who really scored a lot, you know, through his jump shot, he wasn't the flashiest player. He was just, you know, one of those players who was just, you know, magnificently accurate with, you know, a jump shot that almost bordered a little bit on being a set shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he used that to put, put up some, you know, some pretty prolific scoring totals. Yeah. KL shared a portion of that uh, Jim Washington interview with me, Washington. He was a power forward on the uh, Hawks for the, uh, early 70s. So here is uh, Jim Washington talking about uh, Lou Hudson and Pete Maravich. A lot of people talk about his relationship with Pete, but uh, because, you know, Pete came with a lot of uh, a lot of press. Sure. Uh, and um, and I think the, the team saw him, you know, Lou was the, was the man. Right. When, when Pete came here. And um, I, and, and he wasn't going to take a second seat to anybody. Right. But but they were but they were there wasn't any animosity. Right. You know there. I mean we were all you know we didn't win any basketball games but we were all good friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In '73, Hudson averaged uh, 27.1 uh, points per game. Um, uh, and uh, 6.2 rebounds. Uh, Maravich at 26.1 points per game, uh, 6.9 assists. So both uh, very prolific in scoring that year. Um, and, and they were not. I mean, they they were not necessarily like the most the, the fa- a extremely fast paced team uh, during that. I mean, they were um, uh, they were fourth in the league in pace. So they were you know it was a, obviously a faster era than today, but was not. Um, uh, you, you know, th- those are those point totals are not extremely inflated by pace is what I'm trying to say. So, right. They they weren't necessarily a uh, like you said, they weren't really a run and gun team. It was you know a little bit more methodical half court offense. And, you know, it was, you know, Hudson just being really accurate with his outside shot. He, you know, he had made a uh, uh, he made a couple of all star games before Maravich uh got into the fold and he continued to make, uh, some, some all-star games afterward and then totally made six straight all-star games. And, 
and he was using that jump shot really effectively. He he didn't shoot worse than 47 percent in any of those six all star seasons. Yeah. Yeah. He was really, you know, quite a weapon um, offensively. And like I said, just I, I, I was surprised that he was not in the uh, that he's that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Hopefully that's uh, hopefully that changes because he's definitely up there in terms of uh, of guys who deserve to be there. Um, so 74 things take a little bit of a turn for the worse for um, for Maravich. Eventually, um deals with some of the demons that um, are uh, plaguing him. There's a lot of injuries that season to Herm Gillian, to Hudson, and to Bellamy. Um, Maravich himself eventually is uh, suspended for excessive drinking after a game. Um, and he Alcohol would be an issue for him uh, throughout his uh, his career and, and, and in his life until later on when he um, became a born-again Christian and, and gave up alcohol. Um Eventually, um, uh, eventually, Pete re- re- uh, requests a trade. Although initially, apparently, there are no takers um, to the team. But eventually, um, the pr- almost perfect situation opens up for him. Is the uh, a New Orleans expansion team uh, is interested in um, is interested in him? They they do not have a name yet. They, of course, it would eventually be named the Jazz. Um, and uh, the the trade was incredibly unequal. I mean, like the the Hawks got I think four draft picks out of it, and just you know it, it was really a you know the the Jazz gave up basically every resource they had to get um, Maravich, who obviously you know was th- this is near where he went to college, and he's you know, still a tremendous draw. So it, it made a level of sense for him, but. For basketball things, for a you know a weak team to um, to give up that much to add a player who was very good but not necessarily going to bring a whole lot of winning was a uh, an interesting decision, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between sort of the Pete start in New Orleans and Pete start in Atlanta. You know, you're looking at it from a marketing perspective. Um, you know, you're trying to sell basketball in a place where basketball isn't necessarily the peak sport, especially pro basketball as opposed to college basketball. Um, And so, you know, he's trying to sell it in the deep South. He's trying to sell it in the state where he's already marketable because of his college career. So it's, it's almost more of a business transaction than a basketball transaction, because again, you know, taking it in the context of the time, you know, the NBA hadn't really established itself as the, you know, monopoly of, of, you know, sports basketball entertainment that it is now. I mean, it's not, wasn't, it didn't have the unbelievable foothold yeah. then that it does now. Yeah. The teams had to make those decisions. They, you know, they, they, I mean, they have to be cognizant of those realities even today, but especially at that point, that's, you know, there's right. no, no question about that. Um, so, uh, personal tragedy, um, for Pete before the season, his, um, his mother commits suicide with uh, their uh, eight-year-old granddaughter, who they were raising as their daughter in the house, and um, and he goes AWOL before an exhibition game and in Chicago uh, a few days later, and uh, deals with uh, already had been dealing with depression and exhaustion and um, some reckless behavior, including you know, dr- driving 100 miles per hour in a, in a, in a Porsche on city streets and things like that. So there were already going through some challenges and that obviously added 
to it, and the team starts off four and thirty-four. Um, and Pete uh, feuds with the, with Coach uh, Butch Van Bredlikoff, who was n- no stranger to feuding with superstars. And um, they did start to play better as the season went along. Finished eighteen and seventeen, and there was some optimism over the next few seasons as the Jazz. Um, started to have some level of success, particularly in the 77 season. Um, they add Gail Goodrich and, uh, and Maravich starts to play pretty well, especially after Elgin Baylor becomes coach during that time. He had made it all NBA first team in 76 and really 77. He, um, he has quite a tremendous season, uh, there playing for Elgin Baylor starts to, Baylor was sort of the first coach um, after his father that he had really started to have uh, a, a pretty good amount of uh, respect for, and had, you know was play it kind of made the game fun for him. And I, I and I guess it was a matter of you know he see he saw Elgin obviously as you know the the great player that he was and felt like he could respect um, playing for him where with the other coaches there there wasn't that same level of um, uh, connection. It also may have been partly that um, Baylor was a little bit more lax than some of his other coaches and was willing to let uh, Pete uh, kind of do what he wanted. But um, that season, he averaged uh, 31.1 points, 5.1 rebounds, 5.4 assists, and um, shot 43% from the field, which which for the time, not, not a, too bad of a shooting percentage. So February 25th, 1977, he scored his career high of 68 points, uh, taking on the uh, New York Knicks, who had sort of vexed him early on, earlier in his career. Yeah, I mean, if, if you maybe it was ideal for, you know, somebody who was as much of a solo artist as Maravich was. But if you look at the rosters of those New Orleans jazz teams until Goodrich arrives on the scene, it's complete. No names. I mean, no offense if any of the former members of the Jazz are listening here, but some of those teams are just dreadful. I mean, they're just people, you know, who are out of the league in four years, names you would never recognize. There was just not a lot of talent on any of those rosters at all. Yeah, or a bunch of, or if if there were names, they had, they were guys who had been, you know, um, who were about to get out of the league, you know, who were way past their prime, that that sort of thing. Yeah, and then you know, Goodrich gets hurt uh, very early on um, as he comes along, so the team, you right. know, despite that momentum, is unable to have a a, a whole lot of success. But uh, but he ends up leading the league in scoring that year. Yeah, and you know it, it's it's good that Goodrich is there, but at the same time that trade ends up being a disaster. Yes, yeah, ends up the <laughs> the, the the Lakers get the draft pick that uh, becomes Magic Johnson out of that deal. So obviously a uh, a, a huge disaster for the team. Um, Seventy eight things start to potentially look like they're going to go better. Um, there's a, uh, a new GM is brought in, um, and uh, Chuck Robinson is signed as a uh, free agent, uh, actually coming from Atlanta. He had played in Washington, then came from Atlanta, and then came to the uh, Jazz, and he was uh, really uh, a, a stout rebounder, had the, the, the had his peak season by far that year, 22 points and 15 rebounds, but uh, Maravich still has 27 points, still a pretty strong um, season for there. 
actually get a, a couple of okay players. Aaron James and Rich Kelly, who aren't that well-known now, actually play pretty well for the team. And the team starts drawing, and it looks like they might make the playoffs. So they were playing in the Superdome, which is sort of an odd environment, of course, because of how big it is. But they started to draw sure. crowds of more than 30,000 on occasion and talked about getting 40,000 in the playoffs. So they were 24-24 and 24 when Pete goes down with a uh, injured knee ligament with a jumping behind the back pass. Um and at that point, the team falls apart, and even though he tries to return with a knee brace, he can't um, do much. And that basically ends the potential for the Jazz, both in New Orleans, and, and ends the potential for um, Maravich to be able to um, – ends his physical prime in any case, where you know after that he um, is dealing with injuries and um, – other ailments that kind of prevent him from really ever being a great player again. Yeah. I mean, you know, a few years later when, when he retired that, that knee injury was still sort of an issue for him. Also, there are some chemistry issues between him and truck Robinson, uh, some resentment over salary and, um, the, um, 79 season goes very poorly the 26 um and 56 that year um he the jazz moved to utah the following season and maravich is there for a handful of games but is basically at the point where the management is trying to force him out he's out of shape for the first time in his career uh his playing time is drastically reduced and eventually um, they start two and nineteen, and he is—he's held out of a game with the Lakers, which would have been his his first opportunity to uh, battle Magic Johnson. Which actually they was—they were looking to draw a big crowd for that uh, game, and then when that didn't happen, it uh, it, it uh, disappointed a lot of people. But uh, eventually released, he is wooed by the 76ers and the Celtics. It seems likely that he's going to pick Philly, but then ends up going with uh, Boston instead. If you, you know, sort of leading up to that release, you know, you've you've finally got a jazz team that has some talent on it. You know, you've got, you know, guys like Matt Calvin and Ron Boone, you know, some some veterans that know how to play. And you've you've got a young player in Adrian Dantley who, you know, is about to blossom into one of the league's best scorers. And so you can kind of see that, you know, there really wasn't a role there. So, you know, when you know, if if you have a coach that doesn't agree with with Maravich's style of play, you know he's got an excuse to to do that type of a shelving because finally, um, you know, the Jazz after the move have a roster that that's worth watching at least a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but they did struggle that year, and Boone, you know, was was pretty close to the end there. They also had Bernard King for 19 games, but he had a bunch of legal issues that. Uh, you know, prevented he eventually uh, ended up uh, going to Golden State and eventually reviving his career there, and and then of course going to New York. But the talent, you know, there, there certainly were pieces there, but it was kind of a situation where no one was right at the right point of their career to really be able to make them an effective team. And it took a while for them; it took a couple years for them to kind of start getting pretty good. And once Frank Layden comes along, and um, you know, and, and Dantley really develops into a star, they. And Mark Eaton's there, and you know they they start to you know, get get pretty good, and then of course get start to trans transitioning into the Stockton Malone era just a couple seasons after that. But but yeah, that, that's a very that, that's a very weird team on paper for sure. <laughs> it is a weird team, and you're right there there wasn't a lot of success, but but yeah, it was it was uh, it was quite an interesting roster. Yes, for sure. So. 
so going to the Celtics, um, the this is the rookie season for Larry Bird, um, and and this allows Maravich to be on a a dominant team for the first time. Um, the the Celtics are sixty one and twenty one. Maravich has to get into shape uh, during the season and sort of slowly works his way um, into the team. Um, has a game of 31 points against the Pacers, becomes more of a regular player uh, later in the season. The team has, in addition to Bird, they also have Tiny Archibald, Dave Cowens, uh, ML Carr, who was a huge Pistol Pete fan, Cedric Maxwell. You know, things go pretty well there, although he does become uh, Bill Fitch's favorite whipping boy, which leads to um, resentment later. Yeah, that was it was kind of a, a weird roster. You know, one of the... One of the forgotten things about the the Celtics of Bird's era is that they weren't really very deep at guard in the early years. Um, you know, the first three, four, almost you know, about four years until that about 83, there really wasn't a whole lot of uh, deep guard talent on those Celtics rosters. And so there was an opportunity for Maverick, uh, for Maravich to come in and, and play a little bit. And, you know, Auerbach was just one of those people who was always fascinated with Maravich's skill set you know he was always you know I think one of the things at the time was you know when they would do the national NBA broadcasts you know they'd intersperse it with different clips of you know red basically explaining basketball again you know basketball wasn't big on TV at the time and so you know they'd they'd put him on TV, you know, explaining the pick and roll or that have people on there playing a game of horse. And, you know, if, if it was red, the one, if red was the one that was hosting, you know, Maravich was one of his favorite subjects. There's, there are some good ones with uh, Maravich in there and, and, and showing the, you know, the ability to dribble like through his legs and, you know, like around <laughs> his back and like, not, not just, you know, the normal dribbling through his legs, but also like basically, you know, dribbling with both hands and being able to through his legs and then being able to catch it like behind him, which is just amazing. Uh, you know the, the the amazing ability, the hand-eye coordination, and the ball control, and, and all of that, um, all of those skills that are hard to describe are. Um, I mean, there's a lot of places that <clears throat> showcase that you can see, you know, with game highlights. But I think the red on Ram, red on round ball song, but, yeah, excuse me. I think even the red on round ball segments demonstrate that even further. Right, and it was this strange mix. It's like, it's like it's like marketing, but in a strange way. It's like half educational and then half just, hey, gee whiz, here's what this guy can do. Yeah, which is cool. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit, um, yeah, it, it's old fashioned, but like in a fun way. I mean, it's a little corny, but like in a good way. You know, it's uh, it, it's redeeming for sure. Um, yeah, the other guards on the team at the, you know it's it's sort of an odd mix. Uh, Chris Ford um, and. Um, Joe Henderson, who's very young on that team, and uh, Don Chaney right at the end of his uh, career as well. He'd been a, a Celtics legend for a long time. So, uh, yeah, didn't really have, other than Archibald, who was still kind of coming back from injury at that point, um, they didn't really have a, you know, they didn't necessarily have the best backup in the world. So, um, you know, Maravich, like I said, did, did fill in pretty well. But once the playoffs came along, didn't really um, – didn't contribute much. He only played 13 minutes in the entire uh, series against uh, Philly in six games that they lost. So um, I, I think was frustrated over that, but he was looking to come back to the team, actually really got into great shape over the uh, summer 
and played well in camp, but he felt uh, buried by Fitch. And um, there was an incident where, um, uh, where, where basically um, ML Carr, um, I, I, I think, uh, was goofing around and kicked the ball. And um, Fitch didn't see it, but then blamed Maravich for it. And when Carr went to step up to accept the blame, uh, Maravich just uh, you know signaled to him just not to say anything, and he took the tongue lashing for from Fitch, and then the uh, next day he didn't show up for practice, and then uh, decided to retire. Also felt his pride was being damaged from uh, coming off the bench, and that story is from the great um, book um, Pistol by uh, Mark Kriegel, which I highly recommend. One of my favorite um, NBA biographies of all time. Got got a chance to uh, actually listen to the audiobook version of it uh this summer i listened to it twice because it was so good so i highly recommend a lot of great stuff on uh, pete's career in that but um yeah i agree and that that's that that's that's a terrific terrific book and so yeah maravich you know he had a good summer he he shot almost 50 percent uh with the celtics the year before this is uh you know one season into the three-point era right (laughs) So he had a, he had a chance to try it out. He didn't take that many three pointers, but maybe he maybe you know coming off of that a, a season of trying it, maybe he was going to try it more the next year. And he he had a contract. He had a you know like you said a good summer working out. Came in fit and uh, he's also he was thirty two. He was an ancient. I mean that that was a more retirement age in nineteen eighty, but still he in theory may have had a few years left. Yeah, exactly. You know you had this strange training camp for the Celtics in the summer of nineteen eighty. Uh, you know, I guess the, you know, right after this is right around the time of the the U.S. boycotting the Moscow Olympics, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the Celtics, the Celtics, uh, you know, they make that trade with uh, Golden State, and they trade the number one pick to Golden State, and they draft McHale, who uh, who didn't come over right, or sorry, didn't sign right away, and was you know, at least in theory, plotting plan in Italy, plotting to play in Italy. And maybe that was a, a contract ploy. I'm guessing it was a contract ploy. Right. But, you know, you've got Parrish in camp, and he's, you know, he's not the Robert Parrish of the Celtics at that point. He's more of the Robert Parrish of the Warriors. And I think, like Maravich, Parrish was kind of a whipping boy for Fitch. And, uh, you know, you've got Dave Cowens. So, you know, all in total, the Celtics have uh, six future Hall of Famers in this camp. You've got Bird, Parrish, McHale, Maravich. I've lost track. <laughs> you've got Archibald, Archibald. Yeah. And Cowens. Did I, say, I don't think I say Cowens yet. Right. And so Cowens is, you know, by the time everybody's in camp and stuff, Cowens is feeling sort of overwhelmed by the the sheer talent and probably not knowing how good the talent was. He's probably thinking, you know, here's a journeyman from Golden State and a rookie kicking my butt. And, you know, it turns out that it's not really just a journeyman and a rookie. It's Parrish and McHale. Right. So he has this super frustrating training camp and, you know, one day just gets on the team bus and says, I'm done. And, you know, that's, you know, just a couple of weeks after what you say, which is this strange incident between, you know, Fitch Carr and Maravich, uh, you know, where Carr kicks the ball and Maravich gets the brunt of it and gets ticked off. And soon after he's retiring. So, you know, in a span of two weeks, the Celtics, you know, lost two 32 year old, approximately 32 year old, two 30 year old future 
32 year old future hall of famers and you know it seems like both would have had a little bit more left but there's just this strange hot brew of a of a training camp and and they just kind of got got overwhelmed with the experience and of course you've got fitch in the mix who's you know a great coach but also a noted hothead right yeah well things worked out pretty well for the celtics uh, either way but and they won a championship. Yeah, okay. right. <laughs> so I guess it worked out in the end, but yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes you know, a little drama doesn't hurt a team. You know, look at the uh, look at the Cavs last year. You know, they, uh, um, uh, you know, sometimes a little drama maybe just brings everybody together. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Um, that is really interesting. And, yeah, and and Cowens the, the 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 funny thing about Cowens is, is two funny things. One is that he had actually. Um, I think in 77 had retired for like two months uh, during that season, became a cab driver, just, you know, felt like his heart wasn't in the uh, game um, for a little bit. And then, and then of course came back to the team and, um, and stayed for, you know, another few seasons. And then he did actually come back and played with the Bucks. It was 83 season. He played, um, yeah. he retired for two seasons and then came back. That's right. It was like half a season, right? And it was with the Bucks. You know, it was Don Nelson basically begged him out of retirement, right? Um, you know, I think he played more power forward than center for the first time in his career, if if, if that distinction was there, just because I think he was playing a lot with Lanier, yeah. And he played like half the season. I think he ended up getting hurt before the postseason, so I don't think he played in the postseason. But then that Bucks team did sweep the Celtics, yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is another one of those weird, like, oh yeah, that yeah, the, the Bucks swept the uh, Celtics. Like that was just a, a really weird, random um, Celtics season. Of course, I don't think anybody was beating the Sixers that year, but uh, but 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 still, quite a uh, quite a random occurrence. Kind of kind of a forgotten um, season for the Celtics. Yeah, and, and it kind of you know it, we're getting a field of Mer- far field of Maravich here, but it ties back to two things we mentioned before, which was that you know Fitch was a noted hothead, so that was sort of the end of Fitch's reign when people that you know that the Celtics people on the Celtics roster had really just had enough of him and I think that was you know again the series where just the lack of guard depth really just crushed them yeah absolutely um so anything else that uh we should talk about when it comes to Maravich you know I uh, I don't think so one thing that I was gonna say that never really got worked in is just you know, when I was talking to Jim Washington, who was on those teams, you know, one of the things that he pointed out was that, you know, there was always sort of the unofficial racial quotas of the time. You know, when when the game was first integrated, you know, the, the teams would have one or two black players. And, you know, if you go to the era where Maravich first comes to the Hawks, you know, it's it's still a setup where, you know, guys were guys were going to be kept on the roster, you know. Or I should just say, you know, a couple of the roster spots were going to be reserved for white players. You know, not nothing on the record, but that was just the way it was, you know, whether they thought it was, uh, you know, marketing to white fans or whatever. But that was just the reality of what it was. And so when you when you have to picture Maravich coming to the Hawks, uh, you just have to take it in the context of, again, you know, they were treating Maravich's arrival as as, you know, something of a challenge to their own livelihoods yeah absolutely i mean and you know why i i would I, I would feel if i had been a success and then suddenly i'm being shifted uh you know in favor of um 
you know, uh, of this this player who has this wild style who, you know, I have suspicions that I can't play with. And it's because the reason people like him is a lot of the reason why he his popularity is fueled by the fact that he's white. That's obviously unfair and unjust. And I would be frustrated by the situation, too, whether, you know, I blamed him or or not for it individually. It's still you can understand everyone's motives involved, but still obviously be just frustrated by the um fact that those motivations are unfortunately you know felt like they had to be dealt with at the time yeah yeah marovich is just such an interesting um character and personality and definitely worth like i said reading that book and and watching youtube clips of him you know whether it's the whether it's the drills or whether it's uh the highlights of that 68 point game against the knicks where he you know basically destroys every you know clyde frazier and um um and uh butch beer dean memminger um earl monroe all those guys you know he basically embarrasses um he's really just worth seeking out and worth um venturing out and i really appreciate you coming in to uh chat about him well thank you i i appreciated the opportunity before we go uh tell us a little bit about your podcast oh well uh i started a podcast uh you know, that's going to be sort of an all NBA podcast, but we're going to probably work in, uh, you know, an above average proportion of things related to the Hawks, just because, you know, one, I have access to it. And two, I think some of those things get under discussed in the national media. It's not necessarily the, the most talked about market in the NBA. And so, you know, try to, try to take advantage of what we have here and, and, and look at the whole picture of the NBA, but look at the Hawks a little bit too. Cool. Well, I enjoyed the first episode and I'm sure it will be, uh, it'll be a great addition to, uh, the podcast landscape. So, um, uh, thanks again for coming. Thanks everyone for uh, checking us out. You can find us now at the step back, our new home. So hopefully you've been enjoying the, uh, uh, the stuff there, it's been some great uh, stuff from the people who are part of the HP network and also some great people at Fansided. So hopefully you're enjoying that. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and uh, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back. And you can find us on Facebook and uh, Twitter uh, at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening and we're back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.